This is an ABC podcast. G'day, welcome to Country Breakfast. My name's Clint Jasper. The massive volumes of water moving through the Murray-Darling Basin has seen water flow to parts of the country that haven't been properly wet for decades. Today we ask, can you really just add water and expect the health of those ecosystems to improve? I think the current way that we're managing our wetlands and our the water surrounding rivers uh, isn't given enough consideration or um, priority. I think we're just looking at the water that's in the river and how much we can use that and and how we can commodify it and control it. We'll find out what else needs to be done a little later in the program, but first, Serena Locke is here to run through some of the biggest rural news of the week. Good morning, Serena. Good morning, Clint. Start with some labour issues. Pacific Islanders are working in Australia in greater numbers than we've ever seen, and the government says it's mutually beneficial. Yeah, so the federal government says there are now 35,000 workers from the Pacific employed in Australia across farming, meat processing, hospitality and also aged care. Now, Pacific Minister Pat Conroy says, while some countries hope to send more workers, there are nations that may no longer choose to send their citizens to work here. So Samoa and Tonga have moved to cap the number of workers and PNG will ramp up the number of workers it allows to come. Pat Conroy says the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Program, or PALM, is seeing those workers send home around $500 million in remittances and helping those islands develop. They are literally lifting their communities out of poverty and they're getting skills. For example, I met Georgie in Vanuatu who worked in a flower farm in my electorate and has now used the money to set up um, housing affordable developments in Vanuatu, Christelle's another worker. She set up a female-run um, uh, farm in Vanuatu. I met with Joseph and Jared, who came back from Meatworks to set up um, businesses in Solomon Islands. So it's lifting people out of poverty. Australia's cattle herd is set to reach its largest size in nearly a decade, according to new figures from Meat and Livestock Australia. Yeah, we're seeing a big bounce back after the droughts or the herd drop to very low numbers. So the national herd's expected to hit 28.8 million cattle this year. Now, last year's continued rainfall, the favourable seasonal conditions, that's ensured the solid supply of cattle over the next two years. Now, regardless of seasonal outcomes, so if we head into a El Nino or a drought or whatever. So MLA's senior market information analyst, Ripley Atkinson, says this growth is continuing continuing and the prices are set to stay reasonably strong, in part because the US drought means it will flip from being a net exporter to being a net importer of beef. And as a result of that, that'll mean Australia's market share in line with rising production can improve in key export markets such as Japan and South Korea and then also the US as well, which really bodes in a positive light and promotes a lot of optimism for the cattle industry to deliver that high quality consistent beef to three of our major markets around the world due to that US supply contraction. It's a good time to be running cattle. Now, Serena, the slaughter of very young bobby calves is about to end in New Zealand and the dairy industry is facing new rules that are likely to ripple across the Tasman to Australian farms. 
Yeah, so this is an animal rights and animal welfare issue. Month-old male calves are called bobby calves and they're generally unwanted on dairy farms, as you might imagine. Now, some are raised for meat, but many are sent to the abattoir and a small number are euthanised on farms. Now, in New Zealand, the largest dairy cooperative, Fonterra, has told milk suppliers to stop disposing of bobby calves unless there's a humane reason for it. But the company says there are no plans to mandate similar requirements here in Australia. The dairy industry lobby group called Ease Oz Milk says it wants to keep in touch with the consumer expectations here. Kay Tomarop is on the calf management committee of East Oz Milk. I think it's really important for us to be on the front foot here that we, we are looking after our, um, our animals to the highest standard here in Australia and we're always looking to improve that. So I think that we need to be ensuring that we are maintaining our, our social licence within the industry. And just taking a look at the Australian figures, Dairy Australia says the federal government data showed a total of over 218,000 bobby calves were sent to abattoirs for processing um, in the last financial year, which is a record low mm. since uh, records began in 2010. But it represents about 16% of the Australian dairy herd being slaughtered at that young age. Indeed. Let's move on. Um, Serena, I hope you like pineapples on your pizza <laughs> and pina coladas because Australians are being asked to do their bit for farmers facing a glut. Yeah, the, the pineapple farmers didn't head into the season expecting a glut, but they've got this sudden onset of ripening. Central Queensland growers are looking at tonnes of fruit they can't harvest. Now, we are doing our best. Apparently, we're buying two for one as the marketing deals go. Uh, but uh, tonnes of the fruit, yeah, could be left to rot in paddocks. Now, it came about because of the weather that we've been having. It caused a mass natural flowering event across all the regions producing pineapple. Central Queensland grower Ben Clifton says the pineapples are maturing in a rush. We probably had about a 5% reject rate last week on, on what was unsuitable for market. This week that's bumped up to about 30% of what we're harvesting this week and it, it, uh, it's like a snowball rolling, rolling downhill. It'll, it'll get much worse. You know, We've got a northerly wind pattern and warm week this week followed by rainfall over the weekend. That'll get fruit to continue maturing. So I would say our natural crop will be done and dusted, whether we harvest them or not, by mid to late next week. That'll probably look at something like oh, 200,000 pineapples unpicked or, or picked and rejected. There's always something going on with those Queensland growers. <laughs> glut of pineapples, an avalanche, a strawberry glut. They're always begging consumers to come sweep in and save them from whatever nature has, uh, you know, turned into a glut or, or wiped out in any particular season. Mm, that's right. Well, I love pineapples. That's fine by me. <laughs> hey, in bee news this week, a beekeeper has been fined for not reporting a disease that was present in the hives. Yeah, so we know that New South Wales beekeepers are still dealing with the varroa mite incursions. That's a reportable pest because that bug can carry viruses. Now, varroa mite, just to keep you up to date, has been found in a few more hives this week in the Hunter and the Central Coast areas of New South Wales, and that brings to 112 infected premises since June's detection in 2022. Um, but this case in Victoria is the infectious bacteria, the American foulbrood 
related disease. Now, by law, beekeepers have to report certain diseases, even, uh, you know, hobby beekeepers. Now, a Victorian Yachuca-based beekeeper has been fined $12,500, pleading guilty to breaching biosecurity laws. Professor Travis Beddo is the head of Agricultural Biosolutions Laboratory at La Trobe University, and he says when they get this American fowlbrood disease, they can't reproduce. American fowlbrood is a bacterium disease of uh, honeybees. It's uh, the major bacterial disease of concern. It, there is no treatment for this uh, disease in honeybees. And the bacteria starts off as a spore, which is ingested by the bees, and then that spore germinates into a, a vegetative state of bacterium, which eats the inside of the larvae and then forms more spores to allow the cycle to continue. File this one under urban renewal, just transition, but the former Holden factory in Adelaide's northern suburb of Elizabeth is now home to an exotic mushroom farm and food manufacturing facility. Yes, and the... Investors are spending $110 million on converting some of the old plant there at Elizabeth to eventually producing 20,000 tonnes of exotic mushrooms and mushroom products each year, and they'll employ 350 staff when they're fully completed and operating. Now, they'll produce oyster mushrooms uh, as a start at around late February, and then they'll move into other varieties like shiitake and enoki. Now, CEO of the the Epicurean food group, Kenneth King, says it'll be a game changer for Australia. I've got about uh, 15% of the plant. Okay. Um, so what, what was the old paint shop, uh, which is a 19,000 square metre building, uh, that's that's ours. Uh, that's, ne- that's the next stage. I've got a 4,000 square metre building that was like a little warehouse. Uh, that's, that's where I've built this first piece. There's a tall vertical stacker. Um, that's another piece, and then I've got the what was the car park where they put the finished cars. Uh, that's reserved for me to future-proof the business. Serena, we'll be sitting here in one or two years' time talking about the Enoki mushroom glut. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yes. Well, I mean, you know, we love mushrooms, but uh, maybe they'll have to find export markets for them. The little packets of the exotic ones are always really expensive. They always make me think twice before I'm like, do I really need these ones or can I use the button ones? Yeah, we need more mushrooms, less beef, maybe. (laughs) Food for the future. Serena Locke, thank you very much for that wrap of Rural News this week. Nice to talk to you, Clint. Thank you. Hi, Patricia Carvellas here, and this week I'm back with you on RN Breakfast, bringing you the big interviews from the people shaping our country and the world. It's the news affecting you, the conversations you'll love to hear. Start your day with RN Breakfast each weekday from 6, right here on RN or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Today, we're visiting the windy and wild west coast of Tasmania, where generations of one family are harvesting giant ribbons of kelp. They're using it to make fertiliser products that are sold around the world. We'll also climb aboard a massive iron ore train, making its way across the Pilbara region of northern Western Australia, taking the valuable mineral to port. And we'll hear how a husband and wife team are juggling their paid employment with a passion project, growing dragon fruit. 
If I'm picking fruit, I get up at about 4.30 um, and I go and pick fruit, uh, come inside and then get ready for work. Of an evening when I finish work, I go out and I work in the paddock for a couple of hours. Mowing's probably one of my major jobs, keeping the farm clean and tidy. We're not scared of a bit of hard work and I think what you put into your, your farm is what you get out of it. Sounds like a tough slog. We'll meet those part-time farmers who are putting in plenty of hard work in their dragon fruit plantation. That's coming up, but first today we're stopping off at an island in Bass Strait where a project is underway to protect native species from feral predators. Here on an island off the coast of Tasmania, a team has gathered to hunt down feral animals. Uh, the number is I-811. Today we're on Lungtalanana, which is a beautiful island just south of Cape Barron in the Bass Strait. Well, this week we've got a, a massive project pulled together to look at doing some operational planning for the cat control project that is part of the island land management work that we're doing. This is bringing together a variety of different skills and knowledges in order for us to, to make a, a really sweet operational plan to get rid of these cats. That's Andre Sculthorpe a land management coordinator with the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre. That one's a tabby, it looks like. The one we saw before also... Hello, I'm Lucy Cutting, and I've travelled to Lungtalanana, also known as Clark Island. It's an Indigenous protected area in Tasmania's Ferno group of islands off the state's northwest coast. The feral cats on this island are killing native species, and so far they've proved difficult to trap. They don't seem to be interested in the trap bait of chicken or fish because of the bounty of food to be found on the island. To get on top of this problem, Andre has assembled a crack team. Well, the team, we've got the, the Pakana Rangers from the TAC, and we've also got the new IPA Sea Country Rangers, and we've got a whole bunch of different people. We've got Mike Johnson, who's helping out with the operational plan. We've got Patrick from WWF. We've got John, who's a cat trapping expert from Hobart. And we've got Yvonne, who's going to be assisting us with developing some drone monitoring. It must take a lot to get all of these people here in the same week and for the amount of time that you need them to be here. How much planning has gone into this? Well, logistics are the thing getting around these islands, so it's really accessed by a small plane or a small boat. So it's piling everybody in as the best we can and getting everybody here from Bridport is normally how it goes. Mm. So when you come, you want to make sure you've got everything you need because if you've forgotten something, that's it, it's yeah. gone. So what will the next few days look like here? Well, one of the main tasks for this week is to service the, the camera traps. So we've got a network of 50 camera traps set up around the island, which stay running for six months. And after every six months, we need to change the batteries and get the cameras off the SD cards. And so that's quite a mission because some of the tracks aren't too great. So it's slow going in the four-wheel drives, getting around them. So it's probably a couple of days' work just in doing that. The second thing we're doing is trialling some trapping, some cage trapping. So cage trapping can be a tricky exercise. It, it can be effective at catching cats, but there's also some considerations around timing and what kind of bait you use and in which landscapes they're effective and which they're not. I think I'll go and speak to your drone. I'm going to call them a drone master. Um, <laughs> so how important will drones be to what you're doing today? With the cats, they're pretty cagey, and in this scrub area, it can be hard to locate them. So what we're hoping for with the drone is to find other ways of locating cats where we can't see them. So from the air with a drone and using uh, thermal or infrared technology may be useful, but this is going to be a trial. So today we're going to be putting up the drone to see what we can actually see. 
That drone master is Yvonne Teo of the University of Tasmania. I'm using my drone to look at the vegetation and hopefully using thermal camera to look at cats as well. So yeah, I'm just here using drone to see whether it works to look at vegetation, set up waypoints and take photos and hopefully I'll be able to see a few cats as well mm. which can be quite challenging because they might hide in really thick bushes um, and that's one of the, the problems using drones or even thermal cameras because it can be really hard to spot them. Could have went up. Packen arrangers Dion Everett and David Lowry are checking traps and also looking at images captured by a motion-activated camera. We'll just have a look at the footage that we've downloaded from the memory card, which will not only tell us what animals are commuting back and forward through this track, it'll also let us know if our flash is working properly and if we need to offset our camera to get a better picture taken um, over this track. Tortoiseshell cat, yes, that'd be a female. She's, we're unsure what she, why she's travelling such fast areas at the moment, but she seems to be getting around. Black cat, yeah, black cat, we have absolutely no idea where he's Also going. helping out on this project is John Bowden. He's a bit of an expert in cat trapping, having trapped almost a 1,000 cats in Tasmania in less than a decade. I'm only here for a week, but I've been here three days now. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Beautiful yeah. sport. Uh, how many traps will you put out while you're here? Well, uh, I brought six over. There was there was ten already on the island, so we've got 16, 16 cage traps out at the moment. Is there a particular strategy to where they're placed? Yeah, we. Well, as you see, we're standing here. There's a there's a road coming coming down here, heading to the north, and we've got one one another road or or just a track going going east west, and so the cats follow the roads, and so you've got chances of a cat coming along that road and coming along and this is close to the corner and so as you know when there's a, you get an intersection you're more likely to get get traffic coming through yeah. and so this is this is here and you can see where this trap is is set mm. we've got it buried down into the sand so the cat's not walking walking on the wire so you you push it down into the sand and the cat feels is meant to feel far more comfortable going in and there's yeah. a bit of a tasty snack in there too what's yeah, that yeah so i changed the fresh bait is essential so i'll be changing the bait this evening and so we use fish cook, everything's cooked uh fish or chicken is a yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And have you caught a cat yet? No, oh, not yet. I'm still, <laughs> still hopeful, but no, at the moment we we haven't caught one. Mm. Yeah. But they're definitely here. Oh yes, there's definitely. There was, there was one walk past the cage uh, last night. We had a camera out, and you can see the cage oh, in wow. the background. And it didn't go in to eat my chicken, oh, so wow. I was really. Oh work on the recipe. Oh yeah, I was really <laughs> disappointed about that. But yeah. I didn't cook that chicken. Okay. All right. <laughs> Somebody did something wrong there. <laughs> It may sound like rain, but that's actually the sound of 15 to 30 kilogram streamers of seaweed flapping in the wild winds off the far northwest coast of Tasmania. So this is an electronic um, racking system that we've recently put up in the last couple of months, actually. So, this is Carlton Harris. Um, his family have farmed at Marawar in the northwest for generations. Once upon a time, they were dairy farmers. But about 20 years ago, their business took a turn. My grandfather and my father, Stafford, well, they were dairy farmers. Um, and they used to put their, their dairy cattle down on the beach. And they used to always go for the bull kelp. Um, so that they got, ate the bull kelp? They ate the bull kelp. Right. Um, so they'd always 
be attracted to that. And that got my grandfather and, and dad thinking, why is that? Um, and that's how it all started. So that was about 25 years ago. Um, and the business has developed over that time. Obviously, um, I was a very young person, a young kid then, uh, but I've grown up around it. And that's why, where the passion comes from, I guess, to see it continue and, and thrive. And, and certainly the kelp industry abroad is a huge industry and an ever-growing industry. I'm Meg Powell, and I'm chatting to Carlton Harris here at his family's farm more than 400 kilometres northwest of Hobart, where they operate their unique seaweed business. From his father and grandfather's business idea, sparked by watching cattle eat bull kelp, the Harris family have built a thriving enterprise that exports dried and liquid kelp products all around the world. Carlton oversees the daily collection of huge ribbons of kelp from nearby beaches. So essentially we go down most mornings to Tamar, um, which again is on the northwest coast, um, and we've got an ATV and a kelp trailer that we go down, um, and the kelp's usually laying on the beach or a little bit in the water, it's starting to wash in, um, and essentially a bull kelp plant has two parts of the plant, so you've got the stipe and the ribbon, um, so what you see hanging at the moment is just the ribbon part, so we actually cut the stipe off and leave it on the beach. The stipe is what we use for our liquid product and the ribbon is for the dried. So um, essentially we pick the plant up, they can weigh anywhere between sort of that 15 and 30 kilos each, so they're not light. Um, and we, we've sort of got a yeah, kelp trailer that we can um, pull it onto. Um, and so then we bring it back to the truck, which is sitting on the road. We then put it onto there and then bring it back to our plant where we are at the moment and hang it. Hefty work. Yeah, it is. It certainly keeps you fit, which is, um, yeah, and it keeps you on your toes. Obviously we're dealing with mother nature and that's never the same so on the beach the beach can be soft one day and hard the next and um, you know the surging and you just got to know what you're doing down there but yeah it's certainly pulling the plants up um, with some of them weighing between that 30 and 40 um, kilograms you certainly know about it um, but we like to think we're kelp fit and we've done enough of it to um, yeah keep us going. So. Kelp fit that's a new <laughs> metric I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it must be a fairly unique kind of business. It's it's not a common plant, bull kelp, is it? No, it's not. It only washes up in very few parts of the world, really. Um, so we're very fortunate in that sense that um, right along the northwest coast here, obviously King Island is is a hot spot for bull kelp, and then you know the south South Africa, that country, they see a lot of it as well, and a bit around Bruny Island, that. But yeah, it is a very rare kelp when you look around where it washes up. And so are there many people who are doing what you do here? Well, there's only two of us on the northwest coast of Tassie um, or around this area that actually do it. Um, it's very unique and we're very fortunate to have the collection and processing licences. Um, but obviously King Island is another big processing um, plant over there. So what, what is the kelp used for? So uh, numerous, um, it has numerous benefits in, in different different sort of industries, but um, our our biggest is obviously the fertiliser side. So, um, you know, our liquid, we're selling um, Tasmania and, and it, on the mainland as well. Um, so that's from broad acreage. Um, also animal health, um, we sell the dried milk product and we make an increased product as well. So Tasmanian seaweed fertilisers 
brand homegrown right here in Marawa, but that goes all around the world. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, um, and like I said previously, it, the demand is growing, particularly in other countries. So, um, we've got some major export markets, um, both in China and India at the moment. Uh, but that continues to grow and we continue to get inquiries so which is exciting because we've for the, you know previous 10 years we've probably mainly been you know we're well known in Tasmania and also on the mainland um, but to be able to export to other countries as well I think that's another exciting thing to have a sustainable product helping the world yeah it is busy um, it's never-ending but that's what makes it fun and and rewarding at the same time I get to spend you know I get to work with my dad every day which I couldn't really think of anything better to do yeah. um, and I think that's what makes it really rewarding and that's what keeps you going so Carlton Jerez showing Meg Powell how his family have created a business out of the kelp that washes up on the beaches of the west coast of Tasmania. Before that, Lucy Cutting took us to an island in Bass Strait where a project is underway to rid the island of feral cats. You can read more on both of those stories on the RN homepage. Head to our website at abc.net.au slash rn and look for the Country Breakfast program page. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN. Coming up, we'll join a veteran of of the mining industry and get an insight into the life of a train driver pulling loads of iron ore through the red and dusty landscape of WA's Pilbara. And we'll meet the Queensland couple who were so hooked on the tropical dragon fruit after just one taste, they started growing their own. Late at night on this central Queensland farm, dragon fruit grower Gary Lee is vacuuming pollen. There is varieties that are self-pollinating, but there's a lot probably that aren't self-pollinating. To ensure that we get a reasonable amount of fruit out of any flush of flowers, you know, we vacuum pollen overnight because they're a, a night-blooming plant so that the flower only opens up sort of 8, 9 o'clock at night and then it's gone by 8, 9 o'clock in the morning. So I normally vacuum overnight and, and collect pollen and then in the morning we go out hand-pollinating with a you know, just want a, an old uh, makeup brush and a container of pollen. It sounds like painstaking work, but growing brightly coloured dragon fruit is a pursuit that Gary and his wife Sue are passionate about. Just one taste of the tropical fruit had the pair hooked and led them to start their own plantation. We did a family trip to Vietnam, and while we were there, they were serving dragon fruit. I didn't know anything about dragon fruit prior to that. So that was probably about seven years ago. And from there, I thought, what are, you know, like, what are they? And um, Googled it and found out that they were cactus, of all things, and produced this, you know, these quite nice fruit. And then they also had these, you know, really, really pretty flowers. So from there, when we got home, I um, decided that, you know, we'd just bought this block of land. You know, we had all this space that we could do something with. So we just started out. It was just a hobby um, growing you know, um, oh, we had probably about 50 plants, I suppose. And then uh, from there, we're just collecting more and more varieties. And then Sue, my wife, decided that it might be a good idea to plant a few because they grew really well and sell at the local market. Well, that's kind of got out of hand. And we, you know, gone from a handful of plants to over 3,000 plants. And we still want to put in another 400. And um, we're up to about 92 varieties of different dragon fruit. Hello, I'm Erin Semler, and I'm visiting Gary and Sue Lee's farm near Rockhampton, 
where they have invested a lot of time and money into establishing this plantation and preparing plants for harvest. They're very labour intensive, very hands on, irrigation, fertilisation, um, a lot of pruning work, uh, picking is all done by hand, each individual uh, fruit is picked by hand because they're a cactus, they're prickly. Despite the amount of work involved in growing dragon fruit, for Gary and Sue, it's a side project they work on around their paid employment. Gary works in an underground coal mine and Sue runs a childcare business. We work week on, week off, so there's a week uh, where I go away and then when I come home it's full on farm work and Sue's the same, like she's got a, her, her business. I work four days a week doing family daycare. If I'm picking fruit, I get up at about 4.30 um, and I go and pick fruit. Uh, come inside and then get ready for work. Of an evening when I finish work, I go out and I work in the paddock for a couple of hours. Mowing's probably one of my major jobs, keeping the farm clean and tidy. AgriFutures Australia says domestic demand for fresh dragon fruit has grown rapidly. Griffith University nutrition and dietetics lecturer Lisa Vince says the fruit has unique health benefits. So it's got about twice the amount of fibre that, say, about 150 grams of, of mango does. And I say 150 grams because that's what the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating classes as a serve of fruit. What the research actually shows us with dragon fruit or what we're starting to see is people who have pre-diabetes, so that's a, a condition that um, may then go on to um, develop diabetes or people who have diabetes, it may actually help them to control their blood sugar levels, which is a really fantastic thing. So in terms of a fruit to eat, um, absolutely, it's, it's a good one. The bright coloured fruit is also popular for its aesthetic. What's nice about dragon fruit is it looks amazing. So it can make you want to eat your food, want to eat a smoothie bowl, or your yoghurt, your granola, because it's got those beautiful colours through it. I mean, we are seeing in the research that some of the antioxidants in there may help to protect against some cell damage. But, you know, the research in this area is fairly new. For Sue and Gary, farming has become a way of life. Work is only work if you don't enjoy it. This is our hobby. This is our enjoyment. Even though it's hard work and it's hot because they're a summer blooming plant, you know, I find it really rewarding, especially when you get, you know, nice quality, really big fruit. They have plans to expand the plantation and eventually use it as a semi-retirement plan. We're not scared of a bit of hard work and I think what you put into your, your farm is what you get out of it. Control just to let you know about to start heading off and heading towards Rosella. Every day in Western Australia's Pilbara region, millions of dollars worth of iron ore is loaded onto trains like this one and transported to local ports to be exported overseas. G'day, I'm Verity Gorman and I've hopped aboard one of these trains that are a familiar sight in this northern part of Western Australia. It's home to many iron ore mines. Uh, 30,000 tonnes that we're lifting here with three locos, uh, over 12,000 horsepower. That voice you can hear is Paul Lenahan. 
He's been working for mining company Rio Tinto for more than 50 years and used to drive these long trains loaded with iron ore. But today he's in the observer's seat where he's explaining to me what our driver Ray is doing as this fully loaded train prepares to leave the mining town of Tom Price. Everything he does is very slow and steady. Um, it's a very gentle takeoff, and he's doing that so he can stretch the train right out because the train's over two kilometres long. Paul has plenty of experience when it comes to trains and is now the Inland Rail Project Superintendent. But he came to the Pilbara as a 17-year-old for what he calls the adventure of a lifetime. Do you still remember the first time you actually got in the driver's seat? Hey, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, was in Panawanaka. 1970, oh, 74, 75, I, I moved over to rail, so it was five years in mining, so it was a year in um, construction, five years in mining um, on the shovels, and um, yeah, while I was there, um, I also was an unrestricted crane driver on the weekend, so I used to do the maintenance on the drills and the shovels, and during the week I'd operate the shovels, and on the weekend I'd uh, do the maintenance, and uh, yeah, I, after a period of time, I sort of caught up to these train drivers having a few beers, and I used to think, God, these guys come in so clean. And then they started to brag about how much money they were earning. So I said, I want one of your jobs. I'll get in on that. <laughs> so next thing you know, I was a train driver, and the rest is history. <laughs> a round trip for a Rio Tinto train from mine to port takes on average 40 hours. The train we're in today is pulling 240 ore cars. Each has around 120 tonnes of iron ore in it. So how much is that worth? While prices fluctuate, when the price of iron ore is at $100 a tonne, each car is worth around $12,000. Times that by 240 ore cars, and you've got a trainload of iron ore worth close to $3 million. Yeah, so now we're at the bottom of uh, Wombank Junction, and we've got quite a big climb to do here now. So what Ray's doing is he's picking up power at the front. But shortly after, our train comes to a sudden stop. So yeah, we received a penalty back there. There was a detection of a set of points, and so precautionary, it's penalised the train. We've had it checked out, it's okay. So we've got the signal text to come in and just see why that detected. Seventy sixty-seven. West Control got confirmation that uh, both uh, all clear. And um, if you're right, we'll get you on the move and walk them clear of the Senate. What's the um, the strangest, funniest, weirdest thing you've seen in the driver's seat? Scariest? Uh, probably the scariest was uh, yeah, one night um, it was cold winter's night and cattle, um, believe it or not, they don't like the cold weather. So they get in these cuttings, they get out of the wind, and they hurt up. So yeah, the scariest time is I came around the corner and the whole cutting was just full of cattle. But in those days there we could, you know, we'd turn our lights out, hit the horn, and um, yeah, hopefully they clear. But um, yeah, when you're looking at, uh, you know, 10 or 15 bees standing on the track, and you're at track speed, and you're an empty train, yeah, it uh, gets the heart racing. What happened? Well, yeah, I clipped a couple of them, but yeah, most of them got out of the way. You know, you sort of close your eyes. There's not much you can do. Uh, yeah, sort of close your eyes and... Um, what speed would you have been doing then? I think I was doing about 75. Yeah. <laughs>
A lot has changed since Paul was in the driver's seat, including automation of Rio's trains. The one we're riding on would normally be operated remotely by someone in Perth more than 1,500 kilometres away. The company made its first delivery of iron ore by an autonomous train in the Pilbara in 2018. While Rio's rail operations will continue to evolve, one thing that will never change is Paul Lenahan's love of the Pilbara. How about the scenery? Oh, this one thing I um, never take for granted, you know, even the 50 years, you know, whether it's Panawanaka, Cape Lambert, Point Sampson, inland, you know, the morning rise and the, and the setting sun, I always never take it for granted, always appreciate it. Here we are. That was a soft landing, I didn't even know we stopped. <laughs> <laughs> Must be a skilled train driver. Yeah. Paul Lenehan, who's worked for the mining company Rio Tinto for more than 50 years. He spoke with Verity Gorman aboard a train outside the mining town of Tom Price in northwest Western Australia. For more on that story and all of the stories you've heard on the program, head to our website, abc.net.au slash rn. You'll find Country Breakfast under the Programs tab. ABC Organic Gardener magazine kicks off the new year with an issue filled with practical solutions to help growing success. Learn about edible natives and how to use them in your kitchen. Get tips for building raised beds and we share our top 10 veggies to grow this autumn. Plus, easy ways to detox your bathroom. Get your fill of organic goodness today and reap the rewards. Organic Gardener magazine. Subscribe now at abcmagazines.com.au. Women play a vital role across all sections of agriculture, but when it comes to their representation on the boards of peak industry groups, they are still in the minority. That's something the Professor of Agriculture at Charles Sturt University, Jim Prattley AM, wants to see changed. Having watched the numbers of women increase rapidly over recent decades in Australian university ag programs, Mr Prattley told Alice Marshall that peak bodies have to pick up their game to represent these women at a corporate level and reap the rewards that follow. Yeah, well, we can go back to, uh, you know, pre-1970s when women weren't allowed in ag colleges or in in ag high schools and uh, we've moved on a long way f uh, from there to about 2003 when when women became the majority of students in our agriculture programs across the university sector in Australia in agriculture and um, that majority has persisted uh, without a failure since that time and uh, it's probably increased rather than decreased. And so that's 20 years of more females coming into agriculture at the professional level than, um, uh, you know, we'd, we'd seen uh, in a whole lifetime before. So it's, it's a really good news story. Uh, if you have a look at some of the individual courses, then we know that uh, in agriculture there's a majority, but in the animal science, animal production courses, there is a big majority of females and uh, so the cattle industry would be depending on a lot of those graduates. And then in veterinary science where um, they'd be depending on uh, their animals being uh, looked after and cured and so on, uh, it's probably 80% plus women. Mm -hmm. And so we, we've got to get over this uh, 
issue of uh, patronising women, we've got to accept that they're actually the strength of our sector and uh, they're doing a magic job. And if we look at uh, the National Farmers Federation, for example, we've got our first female president uh, and she has done an outstanding job of taking agriculture to places that we couldn't have dreamed of getting in with a male president. And uh, we're a much more professional sector now than we've ever been. And what would you say to those industry bodies across Australia's ag sector that don't achieve gender diversity and that have maybe a majority men to a minority women, if they only have one or two women on their board of six or seven men, what would you say to them? That really is uh, not acceptable in this uh, day and age. Um, we need to have very good representation of um, you know, men, women, uh, older, younger uh, Indigenous uh, and perhaps even uh, immigrants. Um, yeah, there are, we've got to get over this thing that we think we know it all. Uh, there's various ways of doing things and the better input we have from a different range of people, the better decisions we'll make going forward. And uh, that's where we've come in the last uh, decade or two and um, I'd like to see that even stronger as we go forward. Do you think that there's a gap that you can see in the women that are coming through and they're doing these really hands-on ag courses like animal science or veterinary science, mm. but they're not making that leap or they're choosing not to make that leap into the corporate sector, into the corporate world? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I think there's, there's perhaps a, more than uh, we think. Uh, I can think of, I know that in the research and development corporations, for example, there is an expectation uh, of relative balance in gender. Um, so that's 40% of each, uh, at least. Um, I see it also in uh, some of the other uh, bodies, but of course there are quite a few that haven't moved in that direction. And uh, I just think that they're going to be forced to address that sooner rather than later because um, there's a lot of scrutiny these days on boards and committees and so on, and uh, so there should be. And and I think we're, we've moved to a point where uh, there's no going back and we just have to go forward and, and we need to go forward because that's both the most appropriate thing to do uh, in, in order for us to get the best advice that we can. Professor Jim Prattley, AM from Charles Sturt University's School of Agriculture, speaking to Alice Marshall. Preserving and restoring the wetlands of the Murray-Darling Basin is one of the most important objectives of the $13 billion Basin Plan. As a quick sideline, protecting the Ramsar-listed wetlands in the basin is one of the key ways the Commonwealth is able to have any legislative power over the rivers, which the Constitution says are the purview of the states. But that's not what we're discussing this morning, because earlier this week I spent a day at Magoya Lagoon on Tuddy Tuddy country about 10 kilometres east of Robinvale in Victoria's northwest. It's a site I visited at the height of the drought and an immensely significant wetland for the Tuddy Tuddy and 
and Wadi Wadi nations. It was unhealthy, to say the least, after years of drought, but it wasn't exactly thriving after the wet summer either. So I was keen to talk about why with someone who's eminently qualified to discuss it. Melissa Kennedy is a Tuddy Tuddy woman, the co-founder and CEO of Tuddy Tuddy Cajun, a grassroots Indigenous-owned and operated not-for-profit organisation and a research fellow at the University of Melbourne. So we're at Magoya Lagoon, which is a significant wetland on Taddy Taddy country. Um, it's just south of Robinvale in Victoria. And so the lagoon um, sits within sort of the Murray River and the Murray-Darling Basin and is, is fed by waters from the Murray. And on just the way that lagoon is fed, it's changed a fair bit since the Murray River started to be regulated with all the locks and weirs. Yeah, so in 2009, a regulator was installed at Magoya, but obviously before that, um, over the last four or five decades, the weir system has um, significantly changed how our wetlands are functioning. Uh, and for Magoya, that's um, pretty evident in how the water is feeding into the lagoon. So where previously it would feed from upstream through natural inlets and creeks, um, it's now only really getting water through uh, the northern end, which is the outlets. Uh, whenever the regulator is opened or closed, that's controlling the, the whole of the wetland. And what's been the impact of that? We've seen a, a massive decline in water quality uh, and uh, as a follow-on from that, a lot of species, so um, freshwater mussels, turtles, uh, you know, even my aunties and uncles said they used to see platypus uh, this far north, uh, but those sorts of species really can't survive in really poor water quality. Um, previously, there would be clear water running through the lagoon and from those natural inlets. Um, it would be a natural filtering system and so we'd actually see really good quality water flowing back into the river, uh, but that's obviously not happening anymore unless we're getting significant overbank flows, um, which isn't often. The last time I visited Magoya Lagoon was at the end of the drought and it was, you know, not in, in the best condition. And then we've just had some significant flooding waters and, you know, you still wouldn't call the water clear. It's choked with carp and, and those species that you described aren't present despite the significant amount of water. So whether there's water there or there's not, um, it seems to be not always in the best health. What does that say about, I guess, how the basins, rivers are managed or more specifically its wetlands? Yeah, it just goes to show you can't just have water on country. You need the right conditions um, and you need the right conditions for a prolonged period of time. So yes, we're having uh, significant amounts of water flooding, you know, um, big areas of country and, and wetlands but a lot of those areas haven't seen water for decades and so there's this massive build-up of leaf litter and debris a lot of the natural creeks um, are getting too high and, and so they're really building up areas and so what these floods at the moment are doing is really clearing all of that out um, and we're seeing a lot of black water events a lot of murky water but that just goes to show that these flood events need to happen. Um, we need to be clearing out our creeks. We need to be flushing out the system. I think the current way that we're managing our wetlands and our the water surrounding rivers uh, isn't given enough consideration or um, priority. I think we're just looking at the water that's in the river and how, how much we can use that and, and how we can commodify it and control it. 
Throughout the Basin Plan's history and even prior to that with things like the Echuca Declaration, there has been talk of, you know, cultural flows, water sovereignty for First Nations in the Basin, all, I guess, an effort to give First Nations uh, greater control over how water is managed on their country, but also greater say in how it's managed in the Basin in total. How much progress has really been made in terms of, you know, any differences, tangible differences that have been made to date? I think there is beginning to be a shift, particularly in Victoria, around the way the government is um, funding programs and trying to build up First Nations involvement in waterway management. Um, it's probably not come as quickly as we would like, but there are a lot more opportunities. And I think with the release of Water is Life in 2022, um, hopefully we'll see some more opportunities and pathways. Um, Water is Life is was the DELP, who's now DECA, um, commitment to increasing traditional owner access to water and so within that document there sets out um, 12 strategic pathways and, and targeted outcomes that will allow governments, um, water corporations, natural resource managers and traditional owner organisations to start embedding some of these cultural understandings of water into uh, new ways of managing our waterways. You would know more than most in your career as a researcher. I remember prior to the Water is Life report, there was a separate report that um, Tuddy Tuddy and Wadi Wadi Nations did with Environmental Justice Victoria. You know, incredibly detailed policy work that, you know, was required just to put three options on the table for how to get cultural watering in Mogoya Lagoon. What barrier does that complexity in this water space uh, prevent in, or throw up in terms of greater participation in the debate? Yeah, so that, that report really did highlight the need for um, more understanding of what these barriers are. Um, I think anyone who gets involved in the water space understands that the legislation and the law and all this policy and everything is just a real mess um, and it's really difficult to understand even if you are a water law expert um, and so for First Nations people who have this deep and holistic understanding of waterway management those two ways of understanding and knowing don't really mesh well together um, so to have allies like environmental justice australia um, coming in and kind of lending their legal expertise and um, picking apart some of that uh, quite tangled up um, and intricate legislation is really important um, but you're right there was you know the three pathways that came out of that report uh, you know we sort of looked at and thought well what's going to get us the best possible outcomes um, and still each one is it comes with its own different barriers and, and different um, things to be considered. That report was published in 2021 at the end of the year if I recall correctly. Has any progress been made in terms of um, achieving those cultural flows in, at Magoya Lagoon? And so I think for Magoya, what our cultural flows management plan really highlighted for us is that there's a number of other programs that need to run side by side with cultural flows. So there needs to be a certain level of land management afforded to traditional owners. There also needs to be significant cultural fire programs in place. Um, and so that way we can start merging together once again the way water and land and people are interacting. Um, so since our cultural flows management plan and since the EJA um, legal and policy report um, we have been working closely with the Victorian government to enable some of these 
pathways. So with Water is Life, I know that there's current um, public land reform that's happening um, within DICA and, and hopefully that will lend some opportunities for significant land um, management options for traditional owners. I mean, as one example of those, you know, policy areas working together, just when we were down by the banks of Magoya just before, there was an incredible amount of leaf litter left over after the significant flooding over the summer. And, you know, with a more aligned burning policy, uh, better watering to keep that leaf litter moving on, are those the kind of outcomes you're looking for? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we need to see land restored. And I think when you focus on flood recovery uh, around towns and houses and farms, which, you know, that is needed, but what we're not focusing on is floodplains. And if you don't restore and clean up some of those areas, the next big flood or massive rain event that we get is just going to wash all of that into the river again and we're going to see more black water and more um, really poor water quality. So, you know, we need to be looking at the bigger picture and, and asking the questions of why we're getting this water quality and how we can start avoiding it. And there's First Nations knowledge there that can help. And just to wrap it up, Melissa Kennedy, there have been, as you mentioned, the Water is Life report or strategy at the Victorian government. We have the new head of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority saying First Nations voices need to be a priority in any future decision making. Even though there's been a lot of lip service in the past and not a lot of action taken, are you seeing kind of green shoots or, or more areas for advancement moving into the future? Yeah, I think just seeing more um, opportunities and pathways for First Nations is uh, really bringing um, our, our, our goals to the front of, say, mainstream media, um, especially in Victoria where treaty is currently underway and we know that um, the government has committed to the treaty process and that everything is on the table. So, you know, we're, we're going to be looking ahead to how we can embed um, water and land management into the treaty process for Teddy Teddy. With all of these reports and, you know, the deep knowledge that you've got now and organisations like Mildren um, have as well, you know, with all of the policy options and toolkits under the table, do you feel more ready to take advantage of any opportunity as it springs up? Definitely, but that also comes down to resourcing. Um, so while, you know, we're, we're ready and we're willing and we have the knowledge available, there's got to be a recognition that um, there has been no intergenerational wealth, no intergenerational business and economy that had, for a lot of areas that's been built up. So I think that's where we are right now. And um, But we're, we're more than willing and more than capable to, to really push forward with our priorities. Melissa Kennedy is the co-founder and CEO of Tuddy Tuddy Cajun and a research fellow at the University of Melbourne. We were speaking near Magoya Lagoon, where I was filming part of a landline story that'll air later this month. Aside from getting myself embarrassingly bogged at one point, it was one of the most serene and calm shooting days I've had in a long time. I didn't even lose any equipment, which is usually a key indicator of how much I'm losing it during a filming day. My thanks to Serena Locke, Kath McAllen and Angie Grant for pulling country break breakfast together this week and I'll leave you to sail further down the serene waters of Saturday morning radio with my capable co-captains guiding you all the way through here on RN.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.